0: Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Laughlin. I'm Justin Grant. And I'm
1: Maddie Cassidy.
0: And today we are speaking with Dave Robb, who is the Sustainability Director at Cargill Animal Nutrition and Health. Cargill is a massive company that does a lot of different things in the whole food world. They don't just do seafood, they don't just do aquaculture. But what we are focusing on today is the animal feed, animal nutrition and health welfare sector, because that's primarily where Dave works. And we obviously focused on seafood because that's primarily where we work. And, um, (laughs) Dave talked about two things. Um, Maddie, I want you to give us a, a little rundown of what we talked about in this conversation.
1: Yeah. So the first thing that we talked about was kind of the one of the main reasons why we wanted to talk to him. And that is the recent annual sustainability report that Cargill just put out earlier this month in June 2020. They put this report out every year. This is the, uh, I think you said it's the 11th, 11th year. I think so, yeah. yeah. And so we kind of delved into the report and why sustainability reporting is important and why it's important that we make it public that the seafood industry is making these strides. And I think that Cargill has been a leader on that front in making their sustainability efforts so public because as you'll hear later in the episode, we kind of talk about how seafood industry is great at coming up with how to be sustainable and enacting those things. But It's the communication of that to the greater public that's a little bit more difficult. So Even just
0: to the greater industry.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we talked a lot about that and the report and its contents. And even though it's just a snapshot of one company's sustainability efforts, I think it's relevant to anyone that's interested in sustainability as a whole, not even necessarily in the seafood space, just sustainability point blank, period. And it's just a fascinating topic. And they did a great job of portraying all the things that they do in the report. And it's really interesting stuff.
0: Yeah. And then the other thing that we talked about is, you know, at this time, we are going, we're still in the the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, one of the biggest issues from the beginning has been a, a lack of testing um, and, and just not having enough tests, kits available for for people in certain countries. That's been a really big issue. And Cargill was able to add 2,000 tests a day to a couple places by donating some PCR test kits that are now being used for COVID-19. So not only do they talk the talk in their sustainability report, they walk the walk in doing what they can to just make the world a better place because they're doing what they need to do, what they're able to do. To help the greater good, and uh, they donated a couple machines that we, we'll we'll talk about it more in, in depth uh, in the in the episode. But it's pretty admirable a lot of good stuff doing in it's, this episode. Yeah, it's there's good stuff. Make sure you listen all the way to the end because I think you'll find it pretty interesting.
1: Whatever podcast platform you're listening on, be sure to review, rate us if that's possible, subscribe to us if that's possible, because we would love for you to join the Aquademia family.
0: Yep. So. Enjoy the episode. Make sure you're subscribed so you can hear every episode. Make sure you leave us that review and we will talk
2: to you at the end.
0: Sitting down with Dave Robb, who is the Sustainability Director at Cargill Animal Nutrition and Health. Uh, how's it going today, Dave? Thanks for joining us.
3: Hi, Sean. Very well, thanks. Been nice to be here as well with you.
0: Dave is here to talk about some pretty interesting things and pretty timely things that Cargill is doing. But first, Dave, I want to start out with you and who you are and kind of how you got to be where you are now. So can you just give us a quick backstory so our listeners know who they're listening to?
3: Sure. So for the last four years, I've been working solely on sustainability for Cargill Aquanutrition and then later Cargill Animal Nutrition and Health, the the bigger enterprise within Cargill. And across that remit, I cover all of our species interests. So starting with in aquaculture with salmon, shrimp and uh, another warm water species that we, we provide feeds for around the world. But also using similar themes that we've developed in aquaculture, looking at livestock as well. There's a lot of commonalities between the species that we're feeding. But my journey into sustainability really started 20 years ago when I worked for EWAS, the salmon feed company that Cargill bought in 2015, understanding the supply chains that we used, where the raw materials came from and how sustainable they were. This feeding on my background as a biologist and really digging into the impacts that we were making through the feed and how we could make a better story for our customers feeding the seafood that they raise.
0: I literally had a question ready to go and then you answered it. So (laughs) um, tell me about Cargill. Cargill is like a massive company. What is the main thing that Cargill does and how does that relate to seafood?
3: So Cargill's goal is to feed the world in a healthy, uh, sustainable way. And we are looking in a variety, we play in a variety of spaces and food systems from uh, agricultural supply chains. Through initial processing of grains and crops to make ingredients for animal feeds, but also for direct human consumption into foods, um, we also make animal feeds and premixes that go into them, and we actually farm animals as well and process them and supply them into customers. So oh, you do make- farm
0: animal? I didn't know that. Yeah, I thought it's- it was primarily a, a feed animal feed company. That's interesting.
3: So we we have five um, enterprises, as we call them and one of which is animal nutrition and health. And then the other four are in the different spaces around food systems.
0: Right, and I, I think it's important for our listeners to know it's it's not just aquaculture feed. Uh, I think a lot of our listeners are gonna mm-hmm. be, you know, a little bit tunnel visioned into that because that's the world that we all live in. But um, it's feed for farmed fish, but it's also terrestrial protein feed as well. So massive, massive company. We tend to focus on the aqua feed side of things, but you know, there's a lot going on, there's a lot of moving pieces, and um sustainability has really become a pretty big part of everything that you guys do, right? And when it comes to animal nutrition and health, you're you're the guy leading the charge,
2: right? Top dog. Okay. I'd love to
3: say that, but there's a big team obviously working on it. And it's sustainability is something that we've been working on for ages. Um it's it is what we do. We provide core nutrition for the animals that we feed. And and that is the basis of sustainability. When we get the nutrition right, the animals use the least amount of feed, Mm -hmm. so they use the least resources to create the best animals. When they're healthy, they, again, are more efficient. And, And this is the basis of sustainability. Then going back into our supply chains and understanding whether the supply chains are more or less sustainable and how we can develop that. Again, we've been really working on that over the years when you look at things like droughts that come along and affect certain supply chains, working with our suppliers to understand What's causing issues back in the chain, and how we can resolve
0: them. So I'm going to ask the, the unpopular question that I wasn't prepared to ask because I just thought of it as you were saying that I'm not a business guy. You know, I I I I went to school to learn about fish, so I don't I don't know much about business. But if your goal is to create feeds that are so efficient, the more efficient they are, the less feed there is for the animals. How does that affect your bottom line?
3: <laughs> that just kind of came to me. <laughs> And it's the one that all the MDs and CEOs ask, of course. Is like, so is is sustainability a cost? No, it's an investment. And we've got to look at it as that. We can't carry on producing food the way we've done for the last 70 years. That was based on a premise of create as much food as cheaply as possible to help feed the world. That's a good starting premise. But now as the world population is growing and there's only so much space, we've got to be able to use our resources in the best way. Investing into the future so that not just our um, family, immediate families, but into the future generations, have the opportunity to feed themselves in a healthy way as well. And there's, there's still space on the planet for, for the environment, biodiversity that we have in this world. It's a really important angle. And that, that's really where we're going to see changes in the way we uh, value food throughout the whole system. Um, people talk about the impact of food, but we need food to live. And so we've got to create a new value for it where it's valued relative to other impacts that we have on the environment because of its positiveness on on society as well.
0: That's awesome. And Maddie, I want to bring you in because you've probably done more reading into the sustainability report that we're about to talk about than Justin or I did. I was able to read through it quickly, but I know that you're a little bit more familiar with it and you've, you've seen some of the past reports and stuff too. So- Can you kind of uh, introduce us to our first topic for this conversation, Maddie?
1: Yeah, of course. So one of the reasons why we were really excited to talk to you, Dave, was because of this annual report that Cargo comes out with every year about your sustainability efforts, and I think it came out this month, right in June twenty twenty. Yes, right. So it's hot off the presses, and I've read through past reports, and I have to say that this one was really, really impressive and also just because I'm a marketing person I really value the like design of it it's super easy to read and I just thought you did a fantastic job with it so um just to start things off why does Cargill make these sustainability reports and make them public because of course it's definitely helpful for internal in within Cargill to know about these things but why does Cargill think that it's important to Make this public knowledge to the general people
3: we've been making publicly available sustainability reports for 11 years now this is our 11th annual report from based from when we were in a uh, part of cermak um, and then became ewos alone and then was bought were bought by cargill and it was one of the areas that cargill was really interested in is around the sustainability and the transparent reporting in order to tell our story to not just our customers and ourselves, as you said, but also to broader stakeholders and, and move the discussion from where it was in the 1990s up to today and demonstrate the advances that we've made. For example, um, the movement from in feed in salmon feed to reduce fish meal and fish oil usage and focus on sourcing those fish meal and fish oil supplies from sustainable fisheries. We can quantify that and communicate year-on-year year show developments. And there's no other medium for us to do that. We're not gonna get into scientific papers around this, but we can, qu- we can demonstrate this um, transparently every year. And so for the last 11 years, we've been following the Global Reporting Initiative, GRI standards on transparency. And actually they were very interested as to why Cargill is continuing to do this, because as a private company, there's no um, responsibility for us to do that necessarily. It's, it's down to ourselves. And yet I know that the Cargill family are very proud of the advances that have been made in aquaculture here. And to be able to demonstrate that is really important for us. It also ties into our customers wishing to know more about the feeds they buy so that they can tell their, that story to their customers, the retailers and ultimately the consumers and show that, yes, their feed was fed Cargill feed that had this actu- these attributes. Um, it was different to other feeds that may have been discussed in the media.
0: So, can you give us a kind of quick rundown of that? What type of information is in that sustainability report this year, and then maybe some of the differences from previous years? I'm not going to quiz you on the you know the content that's in there, <laughs> but uh, I'm sure at this point you're you're pretty well but familiar with it. Oh, he's got it right. He's ready to go. <laughs> um, yeah, can, can you just kind of give give our listeners like an idea of the content that's in there, and then. I'm curious how it's changed over the years and kind of how that information gets updated
3: uh, mm. every year. Perfect. Mm-hmm. So we take a, a value chain approach to sustainability. We look upstream, where we're getting our raw materials from. We look in-house, at uh, how we make the feeds that we're using and what the impact around our factories is. And we look downstream at how our customers can use our feeds to grow their seafood sustainably. And that's how our report's been based over the years. Looking at the raw materials that we source and where do they come from and how we've worked with our suppliers to improve the environmental impact and increasingly also the social impact um, around where those raw materials come from. Then looking at how they get to us through the logistics, we get to our factories and and address, for example, the emissions from our factories, carbon uh, carbon dioxide emissions uh, resulting in greenhouse gas accumulations, how we're using energy and water to reduce those. but also how we're good employers we're reducing um incidents safety incidents in the factories we report on that we report on the pay rates we report on the gender balance in our in our factories as well and of course how we interact with the local communities and th- that starts to defend our license to operate as a as a factory in in, in, in countries where we are operating and then the, the third area looking downstream we look at the needs of our customers, not just for nutrition, but for also for health and welfare management of their, their stock, and how our feeds can help there to, re, again, reduce the amount of feed that's used overall to get a more efficient growth of, of production of seafood and to maintain things that, um, a high level of omega-3s in salmon or reduce contaminants where possible as well. The big change this year that we made was whilst keeping that value chain approach, was to split sustainability up into three areas. We talk about healthy people, healthy animals, and healthy planet. And it's a a variation on the three-legged stool of sustainability with people, planet, and economics. And where we are changing the, the focus is that the healthy people is about the communities that we operate in and source from and how we help our customers succeed so that their communities are successful as well. But importantly, also we want to address the people that we help feed, because food is is a part of sustainability. Delivering healthy nutrition to people around the world makes the world more sustainable as well. And the omega-3s, the vitamins, and the minerals all come from the feed that get into the fish, that get into the people. That's very much part of our story. On the healthy animals, we're really focusing on the nutrition, the health of the animals, and the welfare. And through this, providing good health basis through nutrition we can help farmers reduce the need for antibiotic use and other medicine use on farms and and enable antibiotics to be used only at critical times we can also make sure that farmers can get more returns from their investments on feed and into sustainability and by more of the feed being taken into the animals then the environment around them is better and the animals are healthier again and the final area on healthy planet is probably relatively obvious, but looking back into our supply chain at the impacts on our sourcing um, and biodiversity and greenhouse gases emissions, and then through our own operations again on greenhouse gases and downstream into how our um, feeds are taken up into the seafood that's eaten and the relative amounts of effluent coming out can impact on the local environment. We're working hard to try and reduce that as well. Wow.
1: I really appreciate that you take a more holistic approach to sustainability in the report because that's one thing that comes up in so many conversations we have on this podcast is that sustainability is more than like carbon dioxide emissions. It's so much more than that. So I think it's it's compelling that you took into account all of these other aspects of sustainability, such as the people side of yeah, things, I was say, especially the that's social. Such a huge component that a lot of people when they think of the word sustainability overlook
3: it's a really interesting area on the social and and we hear it a lot from our customers the the social license that they have to have to operate in the areas where they farm and and for Mm. years obviously there's pressure against salmon farming in particular and and, and now other uh, aquaculture operations as well so defending that and, and helping understand that and communicate on it is really important Our customers are also working a lot on this. And in in Chile, we've worked with our customers to create local initiatives and projects with the local communities, both to source raw materials for us, working with Mapuche people, the the natives in, in Chile, in that area of Chile, to grow some raw materials for us, but also with our customers in the areas where they operate as well to do little projects that can help the local communities advance there. Because aquaculture is a, is a really important employer and source of revenue for rural communities on the coastal region where there's not necessarily a lot of other opportunities. And it also brings skill development and skilled jobs for that area, so which can really help improve the abilities for those communities to um, develop more in terms of not just economics, but also in terms of their capabilities to interact with other parts of business.
0: What, what has been the response? Uh, so I know you don't have kind of a... You know, you, there hasn't been a, a long time here that you can take a look at uh, the total response since you've released it. But um, generally, what what's what kind of feedback have you guys gotten since you
3: released it this year? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Thank you. <laughs> it, it is still early days and we're still waiting. Yeah. So we, we've seen a good uptake from an, an interest level from uh, the, the trade media to, to support the um, dissemination of this. We've also sent it... As we always do to our customers and, and the many of our suppliers around the world. And we're waiting for some feedback on that. Mm. The challenge is we create, as we're a, a big group with a diverse range of aquaculture interests from salmon and shrimp and warm water fish, is to create a report that feels relevant to a salmon farmer and a shrimp farmer. Yeah, and, right, right. And we run
1: into that issue a lot too. Yep. Exactly. Oh,
3: at Without making a 200 page report. <laughs> with with all the details and and this really is the challenge is how do we roll this up and Mm -hmm. when you get into the the front pages of the report you see that we pick stories from around the world to highlight and in the back pages of the report where we have more of the data we split up the report between salmon and warm water feeds because mixing them together becomes less relevant And, and that was a point if I can I'd just like to touch on to your question a minute ago about how Taking this holistic approach to sustainability, one of the really big challenges is that we can't optimize on sustainability across all impact factors. There are are some synergies in some areas and others are antagonistic. And and so, for example, in Norway now there is great evidence to show that a, a certain level of fish meal and fish oil in the feed helps the fish health and welfare. And yet, the traditional driving down on fish meal and fish oil because we're using fish to feed fish doesn't fit with that. So how do we optimize on this? And of course, we've got to optimize on fish health and welfare to to create a sustainable business. That has to be our priority. I was going to if say, that's not. a conversation
0: that we that we have fairly often on this show is fish meal, fish oil versus other ingredients that could replace them and all kinds of stuff. And you know, we don't try to take a side on that, but, uh, you know, depending on who we're talking to, it's easy to sway certain ways, but that's a, it's such an interesting conversation because it is like kind of a headbutting, uh, in a way of the, you know, the, the, what's best for the fish and the health and welfare of the animal. And then what's best for the environmental factors, economic factors, and all that stuff. It's really, it's a, that's going to be a conversation that continues to go on for a very long time, I think. And, um, there's some really interesting stuff happening in that in that world. Do you does Cargill do reports for all of the different species feeds that their animal feeds and products that they produce?
3: So we don't make reports for all of the different species yet. Um, we made our first brochure on sustainability around our premix business last year, which identifies how premixes in livestock nutrition can help um, reduce the impact of the animals. So, for example, we have enzymes which can help and the animals digest more uh, low-grade r- raw materials in their feeds and reduce the amounts of phosphorus in particular that are used in the feed and taken up into the animal. We also have um, really exciting developments in, in uh, production at the moment to reduce the methane re- uh, production from, light, from ruminants. We've all heard about the impact of cows on greenhouse gas emissions, so we're looking mm-hmm. at making some really big developments in that area. Yeah,
0: well. the funniest environmental problem out there absolutely
3: it's um yes an interesting one and caused a lot of uh, amusement over the last year yeah but across other reports we have a report a global uh, report on our global activities on soy on palm oil and on cocoa as well and probably a couple of others which i've missed and i'll get into trouble for
0: <laughs> no problem we're focused on seafood on this show so don't worry about it um is there anything else that you want us to talk about with in regards to uh, the report or anything that's coming up that we, we should be looking forward to uh, surrounding that before we head into the the, the next topic, because I think the next topic is going to be pretty interesting. So.
3: so, yeah, one of the areas that we'd really like to to see is how best to communicate this information so that it's really usable by the seafood industry and, and demonstrates the leadership that's being taken by the seafood industry to create more sustainable food for humans and to refute some of the allegations against unsustainable seafood that's out there. This requires a lot of communication between the players in the industry and then clear communication to retailers and food service to build trust in seafood that they're buying and ensure that the seafood supply chains that we develop are truly sustainable and working to be more sustainable into the future as well. This report in itself is a standalone snapshot and we have to make sure that that, those communications continue over the year hitting our key stakeholders, particularly our customers, but also further down the supply chain. And we also have to engage with our stakeholders over the year to ensure that we're addressing the the critical issues that they're all concerned about, so that we can make the optimizing decisions about how to address greenhouse gases and soy sourcing and fish sourcing uh, and the many other issues that we have to address over the year.
0: Yeah, I will say I'm I'm very proud to be working in the seafood industry because i think that this is an industry that's very open to innovation research and doing whatever they can to make sure that the sustainability is there and i think that that that's something that the the seafood industry does very very well and i'm proud to be part of that and i don't know how that relates to um other proteins like terrestrial proteins and and how willing they are to accept innovation and accept change and and make the alterations that they need. But I know that seafood does that very well, but what we don't do well is communicate that. And we've this is another conversation that we have all the time is bringing everyone together for a unified voice. We don't have a unified voice for seafood yet. And there are people that are working on it, us included, um, to try and just get people together to get out that word of, you need to eat more seafood. Because it's safe and you don't be afraid of it. And, um, you know, that's a that's a big mission of ours here on the show and GAA in general. You know, we've done a couple roundtable discussions now. Um, and the very first one we did was around bringing people together for a unifying voice for the industry. And so I think you're right. I think the challenge that you're facing with the communication of this, getting this information out there is that's the hardest thing, you know. It it seems like it would be really hard to to figure out all of these uh, you know, the new formulations and the sustainability mm. stuff and yes it is hard but when it comes down to it how do we tell people th- that it's good that's that's that's
2: the biggest challenge so I'm right there with you and something like that doesn't happen way. overnight either that's that's that's, that's. It's going to take time and commitment and people collaborating and working together. Mm-hmm.
0: So, and we're seeing we're seeing little snippets of it. We're seeing the industry has been taking some baby steps towards that, um, mm-hmm. but it is it's going to be it's going to be a long run before we're able to actively communicate how good things are going in this industry, not just to consumers but to others in the industry. So. You know, that's a, that's a constant challenge. So
3: It opens up a really interesting space on free competitive discussions and collaborations for raising up the sector that needs to happen as well mm-hmm. as the, the competitive space. And, and there are some limits around that, around the antitrust discussions. And I know that in Europe, they're now going to be addressing regulations around antitrust and sustainability to, to support some of the more awkward sustainability challenges that go into a, a competitive area and um and yet we need to address it as a sector so um we've we've got to have these these uh, spaces where we can look to um change those regulations so we can move that forward as well
0: yeah and so many of the players in that pre-competitive space also have game in the comp- competitive space so the problem is those pre-competitive conversations <laughs> can often have an air of competitiveness anyway which which kind mm-hmm. of inhibits you know the process moving forward. So there's a you know there's just yeah. so many moving parts, and you know this is an industry where people work until they can't work anymore. You know, so there's mm-hmm. a lot of uh, there's there's a lot of uh, holding on to kind of old ways and and old ideas um, yep. that we're seeing start. That that's something we're starting to see change fairly quickly. But um, there is a lot of that in this industry as well. So the pre-competitive mixing with the competitive is is an inhibitor of that conversation i that from what I've seen mm,
2: yeah
0: Justin Maddie you guys have anything else regarding this
2: report no I mean we were talking about pre competitive space and collaboration and I know there was a section within that report that was talking about um, looking at that carbon footprint and how you share uh and I'm going to get the term wrong, but the way you transport your ingredients around the world is you share those vessels with other competitors' feed just because that's better for the greater good. so that that
3: stood out to me when I was reading the report. That's been a really interesting development over the last couple of years where we've we've worked with one of our competitors in Norway to deliver feeds from our mills, where we've got some mills that are in similar regions and our customers are overlapping. And recognising that the boats, we each had our own boats and they were steaming backwards and forwards to customers past each other, quite often empty, coming back. Um, and there was just a, a real win-win around this in terms of better delivery to customers, more economical delivery to customers and, and a huge reduction in, in impact on the environment. And this year, looking at the at the combined savings on on economy uh, and and also on greenhouse gases it, it's really paying off and we still see that there's more of that to come that was just on feed i think there's a lot to be done on on raw materials logistics as well and um, generally the logistics opportunities are great and and i know in in scotland the producers organization are looking at how we uh, also move fish back from the from the farms coming back into processing and, and out to the markets where the footprint is just
0: scaling everything else massively. Yeah. But well, once you the problem with that is once you start looking at like transportation of raw ingredients, that spider web becomes much bigger and much more intricate. So um I can imagine that's that's quite a quite a challenge that you have ahead of you. But I think, you know, talking getting going back to talking about communication and how we get this information out, I think being able to show in a report like this that you're able to play nice in the sandbox <laughs> is uh it it really speaks volumes um you know showing that collaboration and that yeah we're competitors but this is better for everyone if we do this um so i think that's really really profound I'm, I'm really i'm really glad that you guys included that too thanks for pointing that out justin
3: yeah the other area we're really collaborating with across a range of um other big industry players is the cbos organization which was organized by the stockholm resilience center as, a, as an academic exercise to see that if you bring the 10 biggest players in a particular sector, any sector in the world, together, can they collaborate and use their scale to deliver changes? And so we've got fishing companies, we've got uh, aquaculture and fishing companies, just aquaculture specialists and aquaculture feed companies, all working together on issues such as illegal, unregulated and unreported fisheries, uh, human rights abuses within the supply chain um plastics greenhouse gas changes and, and transparency in telling the story and it's really interesting because it's led from the top of the ceo's meeting once a year brings these the ceos together to discuss the critical issues and then the technical meetings over the year hopefully work towards some solutions and that that pre-competitive nature to address some of these issues is, is absolutely breaking down some barriers and allowing companies to still find the competitive space to find the solutions but Right, yeah, that's definitely
2: the critical
0: thing that we've got to work on. Yeah, I love that. Those conversations are so powerful. Like we've like I said, we've only had a couple of them, but we do these round mm. where we bring experts in from different you know, different uh sectors in the in the industry. And the conversations that come out of it are just remarkable. Getting getting big brains together like that is great. Um, all right, I want to move into something a little bit different, but something that Cargill is doing that's very timely and is very very cool. So we're recording this in June 2020. And if you're listening to this in the future, I'm sure you remember June 2020. We're right in the middle of the COVID-19 <coughs> pandemic and um there are some countries that are really struggling with testing. That was one of the biggest issues with this pandemic from the beginning is that there weren't enough tests or we didn't know how to test or there was, you know, this testing was not widely available. And as of right now, it's better, but it's still not super widely available. And, um, something that Cargill is doing is they have a branch that has been donating PCR test kits for COVID-19, which is just talking about doing, doing the right thing for all the right reasons. Can you just give us a quick background on how you came about realizing that you could do this and then taking the steps to, to do what you can to help, uh, spread these test kits out.
3: So as you said, Sean, COVID-19 has has hit the world since really the beginning of this year. And as it rolled out across the world, everyone watching what was going on, Cargill obviously being part of the food systems, we were continuing to operate in all of our operations around the world, but everyone wanted to play their part beyond supplying food around the world. What else could we do? And our team in Chile, where we have an innovation center based in Calaco near Montt, in Region 10. They have a lot of uh, work going on on um, fish disease modelling. And to do part of that, they had uh, PCR uh, test kits. This is uh, a way of, of screening the genetic material from, from anything, from uh, viruses through to, to um, larger animals, and enabling us to identify and, and match up against um, certain criteria. So this is an area where uh, PCR is, is, a, is a te- uh, allows us to, to match the genetic material of a of a sample against an unidentified uh, um, substance material, so that we can determine whether it's a certain disease or or another disease. And so the team had recognized that, as you said, the local hospitals were not able to to keep up with the demands for testing, and yet we had some of these some of this equipment available. And so we donated two machines to Ecuador and two machines to Chile hospitals uh, locally local to our operations so that the, the hospitals there were able to be equipped to, to analyze this, the, the test samples from local population and rapidly diagnose whether these people were infected with COVID-19 or not.
0: So where did, where was that? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to wrap my mind around it. So <laughs> um, where primarily have these test kits been going?
3: So, so the, there's, there's four machines have been donated. Two okay. machines went to Ecuador. Uh, in Guiaquil, um, and two machines stayed in uh, Chile uh, and were used in one of the local universities to to screen, uh, to provide a screening service for the local hospitals in Chile.
0: So did they give you any information on the impact that that had, having those machines there?
3: These machines could could carry out up to 1,000 tests a day. So the two machines in each place with 2,000 tests a day, that's a, a large extra capability to back up the resources already in the hospital. That's awesome. Although this equipment isn't expensive, it's oh. not easy to come by if you suddenly need it. And so right. this was. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Especially yeah. right I mean, now, it's like, I'm sure you can get it. That's been that's a big
0: like part it. of the issue.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, yet, and yeah. it's not even just
0: that. It's even the, the PPE and everything. They're like, we, we can't get enough gowns. We can't get enough masks. Like all of a sudden, everything is in short supply. So the fact that Cargill already had this set up where they had these and to be able to just say, hey, you can use these because it's for the greater good, um, that's pretty in my opinion. Thank you. I I think
3: it was a a great initiative by the local team to to identify the opportunity that they were sitting on. It interrupts some planned research, but that doesn't matter because this is a critical issue now. It Mm -hmm. will hopefully work through. We'll find out when our future listeners are are hearing this. Yeah. But but we needed that now, and and in the future, we'll be able to either get those machines back when the crisis is over, or we'll look to buy some new ones. Yep. But I think it is um, it is a great initiative, and it's just some of the examples that have been going on around the world in Cargill uh, factories and where people have been using their initiative to come up with ways of supporting the local communities. But it's probably one of the ones where it's the most specialist use of equipment as opposed to making PPE and creating food parcels for the local.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, if you, could you give us some some examples of some of the other things that you guys are doing?
3: So around the world, we have uh, a lot of local initiatives that have been been led from creating packages with PPE and creating packages with food that then can be distributed in the local communities. Also engaging with support lines for contacting uh, people using their own time to to talk to uh, local people at risk and make sure that they're feeling engaged in the community and providing direct cash into uh, some of the charities that support uh, the most vulnerable people in our communities as well. Different solutions in different places, really, depending on the on the needs and the opportunities that we've identified.
0: How did COVID-19 affect your regular business? Because I know, like you said, feed companies, people got to eat still, animals got to eat still, people need to continue to produce these proteins, both aquatic and terrestrial. What impact has this pandemic had on cargo uh, and what are some of the challenges that that you guys have faced through it
3: i'll talk specifically about cargo aqua nutrition because i'm not completely aware of the rest of the business <laughs> right, right.
0: but um well again that's the that's the side of it that most affects our listeners as well yes, so
3: yeah sure just just to be sure um yep. so when the as the As uh, COVID hit around the world and we started to experience lockdown, the first thing that happened was we restricted travel and then restricted our offices. We shut down our offices but continued our factories, having carried out in each individual factory a thorough risk assessment to ensure that the safety of our staff, because to continue working with the factories, we also had to have people coming in to make deliveries of raw materials and take the finished goods away. So there were people coming in and out and we had to ensure procedures were in place sure, our own safety hmm. we also had to ensure that the, the the members of staff who were continuing to work had the opportunity to support their families um, with schools shutting down around the world we had to make sure that there was provision for home and i know that in factories we adjusted shift times as well to 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 help support that but then our next concern was would we be able to get raw materials in and we were engaged in a lot of discussions and negotiations Again, pre-competitive work and also work with regulators around the world to make sure that international supply of raw materials continued and also that the logistics firms could continue running. I think there were some challenges at times within Europe, but the the regulatory bodies worked very hard to ensure that the raw materials could keep moving and the, the food industry and feed industry could keep going. And then the second concern then was obviously relating to our customers, because as the Uh, impact of COVID came through and we saw the the closing of food service businesses and the the switch towards more retail, customers were pivoting to supply more of their product into retail and there wasn't always capacity to be able to uh, adjust the processing that was required and adjust the sales that were required. We saw in Asia the the, the mothballing of of shrimp farms um, harvesting out early um, to, to get rid of the shrimp take the shrimp out of the, out of the ponds, move them on, and, and then the, 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 the ponds are left empty until the, the next, uh, until the market starts to pick up. But in salmon farming, we've seen farmers also coming up, bringing their fish towards harvest size, and then looking for solutions to be able to reduce the amount of fish that they're harvesting now and, and keep fish on longer in the water. But at the same time, the new fish are coming in and growing well. We've had a challenge in the Northern Hemisphere. We had a, a warmer winter than, than than normal. And fish have grown really well. So we've, we're creating a, a large number of fish in the water. But the farmers are, are very bullish on this, and they're really looking to see that seafood sales are doing better than expected, perhaps. They've, of course, they've dipped, but it could have been a lot worse. And, and I think for, for those businesses that are able to sell into retail, um they 've been able to continue business well those businesses relying on food service are unfortunately struggling at the moment looking yeah there's
0: been a lot of pivoting that's had business. to happen,
3: yeah,
0: and uh we have seen a lot of a lot of reports of sales doing better than expected, like you said I think a lot of people a lot of consumers are starting to shift a little bit, shift their diets a little bit to include some more seafood because mm. it's what's available for all these reasons so that's that's been really a good sign for our industry. But like you said, everything is, is dipping because the logistics are just everyone had to scramble last minute. You know, this this came on very quickly. Again, I think our industry has handled it handled it pretty well. Yeah. Maddie, Justin, do you guys have anything else?
2: No, off the top of my head, I was I was distracted. And my daughter's sitting next yeah, to me. No problem. Hi Noella. Her, trying to keep her quiet. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um well Dave, we're getting a little close to time. Is there anything that you would like to get out there. You know, we're giving you a platform. You're here. What is it that you? What's the message that you want to send uh, while you have while you have the microphone?
3: <laughs> mm, that's a that's a nice opportunity. Thank you. I think the clear thing is that sustainable seafood has a has a great opportunity for development across the world, around the world, and to get better trust from consumers in the sea in the seafood markets that we've developed. We need to address sustainability openly and transparently. We're seeing the start of that. We're seeing more and more businesses commit to that and and develop their brands according to that. But there's still a lot of opportunity to go further. Cargill is very eager to support businesses in this space. We offer some great nutritional solutions that can underpin sustainable development of seafood. But we need to be able to work with our customers and with the value chains that they operate in to be able to inform that story. And so, we're looking at ways of of sharing the transparency that we offer with our customers and and tell that story downstream so we can create that trust in the seafood market and and help bring more healthy seafood to market with a full trust around the world because it will operate not just in in Europe and the US, but also in in Asia, where there's an enormous potential market for seafood. and we have to deliver sustainable seafood, particularly in
0: that market. I love it. Well, Dave, thank thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate having you on, and I really appreciate your flexibility. Oh, you know, for for our listeners, we had to reschedule this uh, this a couple times this call. So, Dave is really flexible. So, we really appreciate that. <laughs> we we're all going through some craziness right now, trying to to ban- manage work and home life when they're one and the same right now for a lot of people. So, thank you so much, <laughs> Dave. Rob. Sustainability Director from Cargill Animal Nutrition and Health. You know, we, we wish you the best of luck in the future and we pre- appreciate everything that you guys are doing for the industry, for food industry in general, and for the greater good of the
3: planet. Well done. <laughs> Thank you very much. Love it. To to Thank you. Thanks
1: so much for your time, Dave.
3: Yeah. Thanks again, Dave.
0: Folks, that was our conversation with Dave Robb from Cargill Animal Nutrition and Health. As always, we hope you one, enjoyed it. And we hope you, too, learned something. And, oh,
2: and three, subscribed afterwards. If you that's, right.
0: <laughs> that's right. That's um, right. I think that, that was a, a, a head full of information uh, in a short, short amount of time. So um, if you need to go back and listen to it again, go ahead. We won't blame you.
2: <laughs> yeah, I just think any... Anyone listening to the episode that comes from a company that's working on sustainability initiatives, you know, look to see where some of these areas you can piggyback of or, or, or mimic and really try to do what's right to for the greater good and for the future of uh, seafood or, or whatever food industry you're in.
1: Yeah, I love that, Justin. And just for everyone's reference, as always, we'll have all the documents and things that we talked about linked in the description, including the sustainability report itself. So make sure to check that out if you want to delve deeper into it.
0: Yep. And lastly, there is a couple different ways that you can interact with us. And the best way to do it is to subscribe wherever you're listening Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pod Hero, anywhere that you listen to podcasts, you can find us there. And make sure you hit that subscribe button so every single week or every other week, whenever we release a new episode, you get the episode sent right to you so you can listen to it whenever you want. And make sure you rate and review us there as well. And you can contact us through email at podcast at aquaculturealliance.org.
1: Or if you're more of a social media person, you can reach out to us and follow us at AquademiaPod on Twitter.
0: That's right. So once again, thank you for listening and we will talk to you next time. Bye. Ciao.